Welcome to the UX Podcast, where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine. UX introduces a simple formula for personal and business growth based around one principle. We can't solve big, valuable problems alone. Starting with this principle, UX equips and empowers us to pour ourselves into people and systems, scale authentically, and create a life of exponential freedom and impact. And now, let's get started with the latest episode of the UX Podcast. Hey, what's up, Rockstars? Welcome back. Matt Johnson here. I've got a phenomenal conversation for you today. We're here with Peter Winnick, the founder and CEO of Thought Leadership Leverage. He is also the host of a great podcast called Leveraging Thought Leadership, which I was privileged to be a guest on uh, not too long ago. Uh, Peter runs an extremely interesting company where he helps experts like entrepreneurs, executives, and academics, essentially people who have really powerful intellectual property. He helps them scale up a real deal a professional consulting business by packaging their content, taking their intellectual property and turning that into programs, courses, workshops, curriculums, basically the types of programs that an enterprise client would buy. And so we talk in this conversation about how there's really three ways to make money with content. And there, there's some elements there of just because we're a professional speaker, we might be really good at delivering a speaking presentation. We might even be doing that for a living. That doesn't necessarily translate to a course or a program where the the purpose shifts to actually getting to, you know, shifting behavior of the people that you're talking to rather than leaving them walking out with a good impression of you and just enjoying your presentation. So that's a very different animal. And Peter helps you bridge that gap and make that transition. We also talk about the push versus pull approach in adult learning. And Peter points out, which is really interesting, uh, that a lot of experts we don't really have a great foundation in adult learning concepts. And so when we go to take our intellectual property, which might be awesome, and we actually go to put it into a course or a program or a workshop or something like that, we don't incorporate and really understand deeply how to get people to learn correctly in a way that they can then leave with it, retain the material and change their behavior. So for anyone who's in coaching, consulting, creative services, this is an amazing conversation. Uh, I'm really excited to bring it to you. It's, it's very, very interesting. And Peter's a super sharp guy. And we agree on a lot of things, but he also brings things to the table that I would have never thought about. And for example, the things that make you successful as a speaker might actually hinder you when you move into the world of learning. So that's one of the key things we talk about. So without much further ado, let's, uh, let's jump in with Peter. All right. Well, first of all, welcome, Peter. I appreciate you being on the show. Ah, thanks for having me. This will be this will be fun. I think it will be fun. I've been pumped for this conversation ever since we originally connected because I, I love your your style and and the level of directness. So I, I know that this is going to make some people chuckle and it's going to hurt all at the same time, which I which I love. So anyway, so we're going to talk about uh, scaling up with content. But before we dive in, just give people a sense of kind of what you do and who you work with, so they understand where you're coming from. Yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of Thought Leadership Leverage. We're a boutique consulting firm, and we work exclusively with speakers, authors, and thought leaders from around the world. Yeah, and for the most part, we're talking about extremely high-level thought leaders, and so we're talking about the people that can sell into the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, right? Yeah, yeah, for the most part. I mean, it's, it's elite academics, it's CEOs, it's multiple New York Times bestsellers, as well as uh, consulting firms that have, uh, as, as almost as a byproduct of what they do, mm -hmm. created a lot of assets that, that sit in the form of, 
idle content sitting around. Yeah, well, yeah, and we're, we want to talk about scaling up content for a reason. So part of it is because like the the holy, there's a couple of holy grails, right? So for, for any thought leader, you I think you've got really two different holy grails. Number one, you've got the, um, what would you call it? The uh, static business model, as the guys from 37 Signals put it, which is that you have a lot, mil, you know, thousands or millions of of very small customers and you have, so it just looks like if you, if you plot all of your customers on a, on a graph, it looks like a, like static. Right. And then you've got the, the, the other Holy grail, which is the big hit, right? You sell, you sell Merrill Lynch on your social media plan. And all of a sudden you're traveling all across the country speaking sure. to every Merrill Lynch office that ever existed. Right. So, so we're going to talk a little bit about that second one. Uh, I think in, in terms of selling into big organizations, cause that's something that you help your people get to the point to scale up content so that they land jobs like that and, and they land programs. Sure. Like that I would put it uh, uh, slightly differently yeah. from my experience doing this for a long time. Um, there's only three ways to make money with content. So number one, don't think of yourself as an author or a speaker. You're in the content business and you have to understand all the various models. Speaking is one authorship's another, but there's a lot of other things that can happen. So the only three ways to make money are number one, do more of what you're doing, right? If you're a keynoter, do more keynotes. Number two is to do more of what you're doing at a higher price point. So move up the food chain, right? Mm -hmm. If you're only doing, uh, you know, uh, local regional events, how do you get to national events? How do you get to the big leagues? And then the third piece is to digitize what you're doing and make yourself not as relevant. And, And when money is changing hands for your content without you being in the room, that's that third level. And it's not that one's better than the other, but what I have found in my experience is there's only two types of speakers. Those that want to speak more and those that want to speak less. And we (laughs) work with both of them. I was going to say, yeah, it's usually the same person just five years apart, right? Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So in the beginning is, hey, this is pretty cool. I get paid all this money to work for an hour. And then, you know, five years later, it's like 112 gigs last year. And I don't, you know, it's like, I'm only, you know, shampooing with these little, shampoo bottles and I'd like to be home. So. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So that, so it's the same person. All right. So we're, we're diving into the third one, which is that money changes hands for your content without you being involved, which is, which is a combination of the Holy grail and also the scariest thing for the ego to a certain extent that has ever existed. Because then if they don't need you, then that, that creates all kinds of other issues. And, and it creates a big branding and marketing challenge, which is like where, where guys like you- Well, get over yourself, right? If you're doing yeah. this for ego, you're, you're, you're limited as right. to where it'll go. And, and by the way, this is a great job for egomaniacs. I mean, your, your work day is 60 minutes and ends in a standing ovation. Nobody's ever, <laughs> what happens to the mailman when he gets home? Does his wife, like the, the wife and kids give him a standing ovation? It's like, good, good job, good job. Exactly. It's, it's not a normal world where you're that yeah. important to that many people all the time. That's not normal. That, that is true. Yeah, the, that, yeah, especially the speaker route. I like, I, you know, the, the, those, those of us that speak less and podcast more or do more behind the scenes content, obviously we don't get a standing ovation for all of our, all of our stuff. But um, yeah, the, the occasional ones when they do happen is pretty cool. Um, so we want to talk about um, making the, like what happens when we make the shift from speaking to training? And, and what do you mean by like, what's, what's the definition of success for a speaker versus a trainer? Yeah, so I, th- I think the way you need to look at that, or what I would suggest is, who's the buyer and what are their needs? So let's, let's sort of break that down. If mm-hmm. the buyer of a speech is different than the hostage sitting, you know, butt in a seat, right? If I work mm-hmm. for Oracle for the sales group, I didn't decide to have so-and-so there. Mm-hmm. I was told to be in Las Vegas on such and such a date and, and sort of, I'm sort of captive, right? right? What does the buyer want? The person that brought you in there, whether that's the meeting planner, the whoever owns the PL for the meeting, et cetera, they want you to be entertained. 
They want you to be engaged and they want you to be exposed to some content that may be of interest to you. And then there's another subset on occasion, they may be using your name and brand to fill seats. If it's a larger sort oh, of an association of number one is understand what the buyer's needs are and make sure you're making, you're exceeding those needs, right? Because if you think it's all about the audience member and you neglect the buyer, that's not good. And, and their needs are very different. So that's on the speaking side. When you move to training, in my mind, um, what needs to happen in training is you're going to change behaviors on an individual or a team level based on your expertise and your content mm -hmm. that in the aggregate is going to move a business lever in a way that's measurable. Yeah. And as long as those results, the benefit to the buyer of those results exceeds your cost, you'll be there forever. If you either can't measure it or the measurement is crappy, you're going to be doing something else, right? So you're not going to be sustained here. And if you go back through the history of, you know, what happened to the marketing folks, they used to get away with murder saying, oh, it's branding, it's branding, it's branding. Right. And now we live in the age of Google and clicks. It's a very yeah. similar level of sophistication that's happening. So how are you changing behavior? How do you measure it? And you have to have those conversations with your clients early on, not after, before you launch an engagement. Yeah. And, that, and that's one of the things that, uh, and, and this will, if, if you're, if you guys are listening to this after the fact, you may have already read it in the book, but, um, so in the UX book, we talk about the fact that the, the, as things get more transparent and as metrics get a lot easier to report, track, measure, and make decisions based on that, a lot of things will change. I mean, obviously yep. people are going to lose jobs. You know, certain speakers aren't going to be brought in. Trainers are not going to like have their contractor. Like all kinds of things are going to happen from the fact that all of a sudden we can see better, not perfectly, but we can see better what drives results and what doesn't. Right. And, and business leaders, That's I think, right. are going to get a lot better at monitoring the metrics and actually seeing, right, right. Because the 80 20 rule applies to everything. Right. Yep. So if you bring, if a company brings in, you know, let's, let's say five trainers over the course of a year, odds are four of them are going to have zero effect and one's going to have a huge effect. Potentially. Sure. And I, and I would say it, it's, it's a skill development piece for the provider, right? So if you think about what makes a great speaker, it's charisma, it's energy, it's reading the room, it's getting people to fall in love with you, it's getting them to, it's storytelling, it's, it's understanding how to play emotions. Those things don't necessarily apply at the same level when it comes to people in the knowledge transfer business. Right. Right. So yeah, where you actually have to drive behavior change. Yeah, totally. And, and, and there is an art and science to instructional design and adult learning theory. And oftentimes the things that make you successful as a speaker are actually distracting and, and work against you when you move into the learning space. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks that are speakers don't like that. I mean, what they like is the stage being the center of attention, doing their thing. Um, they know sort of how to, how to control that and where, where the beats fall and where they get the laughs and where to sort of take it deeper and where the music comes in and all that stuff. Training is much more of service to the person that is learning. And your, yeah. and your job, the, the metric for success is, did I convey knowledge to you that you can keep and actually do something with? Definitely different skill set. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how, how scaling content fits into that. Because uh, you mentioned there's a, there's a skill building on the part of the expert. The, yeah. the, so the, there's an element where they can go out and they can, they can learn more and build a skill of adult learning, right? Yeah. The, the ability to transfer knowledge in such a way that it actually drives behavior change. So that, that, that is an option. Sure. Um, it sounds like one of the other options though, is to come to someone like you that has that knowledge already that can help them take all the stuff that's up here that would just kind of get barfed back on camera 
and sure. put it into an adult learning format that you already know works. Is that right? Yeah, and you have to have uh, a model. It has to be codified. You have mm-hmm. to be able to break apart what are the expected outcomes. And then mm-hmm. you have to figure out various activities and such to help people get there, whether it's you uh, delivering that in a workshop or more likely from a scalability perspective, doing something digitally through distance learning and such. And totally different skill set, right? Yeah. So again, a speaker... If, the, if their gig is for an hour, they're speaking for an hour. In training and development and learning, it's 20% you, 80% the learner doing something. So it's not so much about you, you're guiding them. And when I say guiding them, that's digitally, that's through video, throw out a concept, get them to think about that, get them to do an activity, you know, move, move on to the next thing. Okay. So let's talk about the challenges of someone who does enjoy the speaking, wants to move into training, wants to sell their training into larger organizations. And you mentioned yep. just some of the, some of the challenges, like, but let's say you're the person, you're, you're the Grant Cardone that can kind of bridge that gap where you, and you are, your speaking creates the demand for the training. You feel well, like number you can- one, your speaking should create the demand for the training. So let, let's go backwards to yeah. processes and systems, right? Okay. So a lot of speakers are not good at systems and processes and being more strategic mm-hmm. because the very nature of a speaking business, and it's not a, a, a judgment on them as, as individuals, is it's transactional, right? So right. the client calls you and says, oh, great, we have this event. You fit. It's, you know, January 7th in Scottsdale. Yes, here's my fee. Yes, here's our audience. Yes, bang. Go in, do the gig, go home. Not a lot of opening in that scenario for long-term relationship development. The reality is if you do speaking well, you have to have the systems and processes in place before the event, during the event, and after the event to get them to fall in love with you and your content, get them to understand that you've got a whole suite of products, offerings, and solutions that can be pushed out. Because again, what the buyer wants is they want to spread that peanut butter across the organization consistently. And early on in the relationship, I guarantee you this, an enterprise buyer is looking at you and they're going to put you into one of two categories. Number one, brain on a stick. Wow, brilliant, amazing, fascinating. That's really, really cool. Zero scale. So I can only use them for live events. So we use them for the annual sales, rah, rah, or the customer event or whatever. The other category they put you in is brilliant and scalable, right? Okay. And what I want as the head of sales or the head of learning or the head of whatever is I, want, I need all 5,000, 50,000 of my employees to be operating from the same playbook. I can't have 17 different sales systems going on in an organization. I can't have 17 different negotiating systems or leadership systems. So if you're just interesting, that's all fine and dandy and there's a place for you and you can make great money. But if you're interesting and scalable, it's a game changer. Gotcha. Okay. So, so let's, let's stay, let's stay in that foundational area. So how do you lay the foundation to become that scalable? So, so number one, you've got to have, so let's start backwards. The prereqs are that your content is actually teachable and there is a result from it. So if, if you're a speaker and your content is, you know, something along the lines of, and you know, when I was 15, a shark ate my leg off and it was an interesting story and I was all over your CNN. Yeah. That's interesting for about an hour. Um, Maybe that person could teach you something about resiliency, blah, blah, blah. But if there isn't a method, if it's a story, that's not scalable. So one is it, what is scalable and what is teachable based on my thinking, right? And you have to break that down. And then the next is how, how do I do that? Is that assessment tools? Is it video-based training? Is it licensing? Is it train the trainer? Is it some sort of a in the box, you know, kit, sell a facilitator guide or something like that? What are the different formats based on the markets that you're serving, right? So, uh, you know, is there an app 
Is there some sort of a measurement tool, whatever? So based on the markets that you're serving, who's the competitors? And a lot of speakers don't think in terms of competitors, but now you're in a competitive market space. You're not the only one, shockingly, doing leadership training, management training, or sales training, right? right? Um, So what's your niche? Is it going to be by psychographic, by demographic? Why are you a better, quicker, cheaper mousetrap to convince people that are using something else to solve the need and solve the problem that you solve? Mm. You know, that's a risk you're asking them to take. Yeah. Right. So you, you, you got to have to be able to understand your competition and then you've got to have a comparable suite of products, offerings and solutions to make it align to what the buyer wants. OK, gotcha. All right. There's a lot there. But before we go into some of the other things, let me let me start with this question uh, on format. Is there any particular as you mentioned, the the the, the focus shifting from you know, 80% speech to 20% kind of listening to flipping it to where you're only delivering 20% and then 80% is on the person that's implementing and the focus has to be there. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing any innovations or new things coming down the pipeline in terms of how people are formatting their trainings that's working for people? Because we know people are are evolving, shifting. There's a ton. Fans are decreasing. You know, what are you saying? There's a ton. And by the time someone hears this, there's probably a ton more, right? So <laughs> there, there's, there's apps. So if you think about it, what are the tools that we have to change behavior today? Any behavior. So if you think about Fitbit or, or tracking, right? Yeah. For everybody knows how many steps they took. That wasn't something, if you went back in time, even 10 years ago, if I asked you how many steps you took, you'd look at me like you're not, like I was nuts or mm-hmm. your heart rate or all. So measurement is key, right? That's okay. a piece of it. Um, Anything that makes it accessible easily, you know, on, on, on a device that I've got in my pocket yeah. or, or I can get to anytime I want it. Um, I think one of the other differences is this push versus pull. So back in the Stone Ages, when I was coming up in my career, the way training happened is they would lock you in a room somewhere for three days, turn on the hose of knowledge, stick it in your head and like, that's everything you need to know about being a sales professional. And then you'd go off into the wild and go, that's pretty cool. I just forgot 92% of that uh, before I got to my car. Mm-hmm. So you need to have some baseline learning, but the way we, we understand adult learning to be today is more pull. So if tomorrow, if you and I work together mm-hmm. and we were colleagues and tomorrow we needed to have a difficult conversation. So I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about that. I want to go somewhere where I can pull down some uh, tools and some tips to say, hey, Peter, here's how to have a difficult conversation. And bang, I want to I want to digest that today, think about it, use it tomorrow. So it's gotcha. this pull versus push piece, small okay. nibbles, small bites. I mean, moving from even if you think about content more broadly, a book, which is a four to six hour commitment to read, to a TED Talk, 18 minutes. Uh, and there are people that brag about, and I watched the whole TED Talk as if it was some, you know, uh, uh, cross-country marathon that they did. It was some accomplishment or some major feat. Um, and, and, and the reality is people want immediate gratification, right? So why should yeah, I learn all this stuff versus, geez, tomorrow um, I've got to resolve a conflict among two team members. Geez, how should I do that? Oh, here's, here's a little nugget. Let me read that. And here's a framework and here's a process. Oh, that sounds interesting. I might try that. So okay. I think that's a push versus pull is a big push versus pull. I like it. Okay. So, so being able to put your, put your, you put your system, put your content essentially into um, I don't know if you call them layers, but something to where, uh, and this is like, if you think of how like a new football coach installs their system into a football team, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they, they don't bring it in and attempt to install, you know, all of their packages in one. They install it. In fact, they install it in a series of packages, right? And sure. for, for that specific reason. And they're dealing with kids that are 18 to 22 years old, which we think of as like not the workforce, but that's exactly, we might as well just call that the workforce that we're in because now we're, we're right. pretty much, we've been, we've been that way. Like everybody my age and younger, you know, has grown up with the internet since we were in our teens, right? So like our brains are fundamentally different. Uh, and uh, so I think that's the workforce that we're contending with. And, and they're very smart about how they install it and the expectations that get, come with it because they get the immediate feedback that businesses don't get, which is, look, sure. you put the product onto the field and you find out immediately whether your way of teaching somebody actually worked or not. And I think that's one of the, one of the problems with speaking and training is that we are removed from that process. And so sure. you talk about measurement and stuff like that. Do you see, do you see people who are selling things, especially into the corporate world, selling training programs, getting better or providing a management and tracking or measurement and tracking system as part of their suite so, of products? So two, that's two different things there. So you've got to have uh, the tracking in place for leadership and management, right? So if I just spent all this money to lay out this great new whatever to my team and 23% of them haven't logged in yet, as a leader or a manager, I probably want to have a conversation with that person. Yes. And I probably want to cross that data against my performers and say, ah, interesting. My bottom performers never do any of the training. That's an interesting piece. Or maybe in some instances, it's my top performers. Okay, well, why do they think? Well, whatever it is, mm -hmm. we want to understand that. And why aren't they using it? And then I want to see, and, and we do a lot of A-B testing. Wait mm -hmm. a minute, if I take a, a, a pop, you know, two, two populations that have the same function, same role, same job, put one on a platform and another not and sort of observe them, there should be a noticeable difference. If not, why bother, right? Mm -hmm. So the measurement, so, so the first level of, of, of what I would call measurement is manager involvement from a communications perspective and visibility, right? Okay. So when, when a manager used to send you to the three-day training, um, they knew that you went, you wouldn't play hooky, but they didn't know right. if you were engaged. They didn't know if you were doodling or, or yeah. what's going on at the bar between nights one and two or whatever. Now they want to be able to track, oh, wait, he, you know, he logged in and he did the activities and he completed the piece and all that stuff. The second piece, which is harder, is up front, you've got to be able to have smart conversations with your clients to manage expectations, right? So mm -hmm. as a result of a thousand people going through this program on communications, we would expect them to be com better communicators. How would we measure that? How would mm -hmm. we know that? Let's have a let's have a conversation around that. Is it, uh, you know, sales is always an easy example. Are they, you know, getting, uh, you know, uh, more presentations? Are they selling more? Are they getting higher more? Whatever. Mm -hmm. But how do you do that with a frontline manager? Uh, uh, you know, on a program on effective feedback. Oh well, are people using these tools? So you want to you want to be able to measure how they're using it and what the growth is, right? So if I went on a diet and spent six months on the diet and didn't lose any weight, we would, we would determine that either I'm lying or the diet doesn't work. Right? And in my case, probably a little bit of both, right? But, but uh, if it didn't work, then I'm going to find a better tool, right. right? And I probably wouldn't wait six months to do it. Right. It's the same thing. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. It's uh, what's interesting about that. I was uh, talking with, with a mentor of mine here a while back and, and he's very, very good at, analyzing a business and figuring out what, what is the, what is the progression, the sequence of cause and event relationships that caught that start with, you know, 
input and you get the output that you want, right? Exactly. So if you're a sales force, if you're, if you're a telephone based sales calling, you know, sales force, you know, exactly, you know, the input, the, the cold outbound that goes in here, out pops a sales consultation that closes, right? So he, you know, he's got the whole thing built out and some, there's some people that care intensely about that. And, but if you were to try to come into an organization and teach them a sales technique, but you don't understand what the performance model is that, of the business that you're even working with, it's going to be very difficult for you to prove your effectiveness. You have to really dive in and understand what their metrics are and be able to work with that. And like you, you as the expert have to come in and like put the work into understanding what their performance model is, if that makes sense, so that you can actually yeah, put measurement tools in place. And I would add to that, it's also good to get a sense of uh, culture and to get a sense of systems and rewards, right? So let's say I've, I've, I've worked with, with clients, innovation content, and their clients say, yeah, we want our people to be more innovative. Okay, well, one of the potential outcomes of uh, uh, giving people information that helps them to be more innovative is they're gonna take more risk and there's gonna be some failures, right? Yeah. So if you have a compensation system that really whacks me for failing, <laughs> yeah. right, and only rewards success, it's easier for me to mm -hmm. tissue reject this new content because it's gonna affect my bonus. So. Yep. We rolled out these programs to tease. We know this stuff works everywhere else. What's up with this organization? And the reality was there was a uh, processes in the compensation system yep. that dinged people for failures. That was an absolute violation of what we were teaching. So we said, hold on, time out. Okay. We can't compete with this. So you have to fix this and then we can try that again. And, and you know, it was like, oh, yeah, of course, because, you know, comp drives behavior more so than training. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so, so those are things that should and hopefully do come up in smart conversations with the client before sure. the engagement, before the trainings even start. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. So let's talk about a little bit on, on finding your niche. Cause this is, I think this is really where a lot of thought leaders struggle and that's yep. where they really struggle to monetize. It's in the niche and it's in thinking in terms of what category totally. they're in and, and what, and, cause you mentioned like we, we tend to ignore competition, right? And part of the ego of being a speaker is you kind of get that. Sometimes you uh, people, it'll actually come out of their mouth. I have no competitors. Yeah. Fantastic from an ego. Like, Hey, that's awesome for personal drive and ambition. Totally I'm all not for true. It. Totally, totally not true. true. <laughs> Wildly untrue. Yeah. So anyway, so how do you get people to like, what, what are some of the steps that you would recommend somebody take to sit down and look at what's the category they're in? How do you zero in on the niche that's going to be the most, like how do you find that most valuable slice of the market? Because you're talking about a lot of work yeah, sure. to, to so, scale your content. I think it's easier for someone to say, uh, I'm good and my stuff is good and it's so good that it would be good for everybody. Right? I've got this new leadership model like, Everybody, even, even people at home can benefit from it. And I said, okay, great. That's called mass marketing. So unless you have the budget of Coca-Cola right, <laughs> to mass market your product to everybody, that's not going to work for you. So I, I, I think the first thing that we do is say, let's redefine a niche because I think people have ways of defining that that are wrong, right? Mm -hmm. or, or, or antiquated. Okay. Traditionally, a niche might have been demographic. Oh, I want, you know, uh, uh, married women from 40 to 52 that have two children because I'm selling this sort of product. That is still one way to look at the world, but I think you have to be more sophisticated and take a demographic and layer on top of that a psychographic yeah. and then layer on top of that uh, an industry play. So for example, if you're in sales and you've got, let's say you've got a great uh, program for newly minted sales leaders. Okay they're kind of a dime a dozen, right? I can go online and find about a hundred of those. So geez, how am I going to compete in that? 
Well, I've done a lot of work in the pharmaceutical space. Oh, oh. So what would it take for me to customize the content? About 5 to 10%. So it's the world's greatest program for newly minted sales managers in the pharmaceutical space. Right. Right. And now that's assuming that you've done some homework and you find some room there. So yes. it's got to be, because we live in the age of the long tail, a high level of specificity. So the way you do that is you have your your core stuff, your skeleton that doesn't change, and layering on things that make it feel a little bit more custom, things that make it feel a little bit more tailored to a specific uh, audience. You go too far down the niche and you're building content that you can't replicate and put into other places. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, it's finding the niches that way. Mm -hmm. uh, you could also do it by uh, um, geography. You can do it by function, right? Newly minted managers, as an example, is interesting because there's a lot of newly minted. Uh, frontline managers. If you think about fields like hospitality, restaurant, high turnover, yeah. a lot of sort of 26 year olds, oh, it's my first time as a people manager. Like that's interesting. Um, technical expertise. I have a client that has a leadership uh, model and methodology, but he focuses specifically on folks that were individual contributors in a STEM environment, mm -hmm. moving to people management. So think oh, of wow. a bunch of Spocks that have to deal with people. Does right. That happen, right? Um, it's, it's a very similar leadership <laughs> platform that would work in, in right. other into, you know, other uh, uh, sectors. Yeah, I'm sure the That's, principles are universal. Yeah. Human nature is human nature, but yeah. Well, and this goes back to category, right? Because I think uh, I think experts, especially thought leaders, we, we have an inherent problem, and I want to honor your time, so we'll wrap it up here in a second. Um, we have an inherent problem with, with not appealing to everybody because the, we're just, we're very fascinated by concepts and ideas, and we understand that it relates. And a lot of times, the people that are best at developing content understand that this is, these are universal principles that apply to everybody. That's great for theoretical work, not great for marketing. Well, it's not just apply. I think the other side of that, who values it the most, right? Yes. So the other piece is when you're looking through your, your, your niches, if you've got a, you, you know, I don't know, whatever, customer experience uh, stuff, you could put that in a call center. Great. How much do you think companies are paying to train people that make 12 bucks an hour? I'm going to say not a lot, right? <laughs> or, you know, a customer experience in, in uh, you know, uh, private aviation. Right. Where clients are paying tens of thousands of dollars. They're probably going to value that a little bit more because the value in their supply chain and their client base is worth more. What's yes. one new customer worth to someone buying a private jet? Millions. You know, mm -hmm. what's one more call to American Express to, you know, question a bill? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And that's a hundred percent. One of the, one of the main things that I see is, is thought leaders not recognizing the category that they live in. And that's a great example of that is the category that you live in. The economics of the category are always dictated by the end of the chain. What's being sold at the end of the chain. Well, and, and I think the reality is most content, most of the time is a commodity. So you don't want to start there. Eventually your stuff will be commoditized. Go in on the highest level that you can capture the premium for as long as you can. Mm -hmm. Then eventually you can trickle down, but you yeah. don't want to enter as a commodity, right? Like I would rather, you know, I, I, I would rather not be in the business of selling wholesale flour. I'd figure out how to sell some funky, cool wedding cakes that are thousands of dollars, same yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. So where do you get the most value add today? And ultimately if it's a commodity, that's cool. It's a high volume business, but don't start there. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, David Maser talks about that in one of his books. I think it's yep. true professionalism, uh, going from from brain surgeon all the way down to pharmacist, if I remember right, right? I love yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, he's got nurse. Yeah, I remember the four. Yeah, yeah and the psychotherapist. I think it was the psychotherapist is the highest one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I love that book. That's a phenomenal book. Anyway, all right, so a couple questions. So how do people connect with you? And then uh, you're obviously a book guy, so I'd love to hear maybe one of your top book recommendations. Oh, that's like asking which kid's my favorite. I so uh, the, the best way to get me is uh, you can go to the website, thoughtleadershipleverage.com. 
or you can email me directly at peter at thoughtleadershipleverage.com. Yeah, the book question is a tough one because I've got each and every one of my clients has written multiple books. So it's Mm -hmm. clearly a favorite. (laughs) What what am I reading? Let's see. Uh, yeah, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> that's, just, that's a no win. All right. Well, I'll, I'll yeah. throw one out for you. So you mentioned the, the middle layer of figuring out where your category is, the psychographic. Uh, one of our other past interviews, the guy recommended uh, The Hero and the Outlaw. Do you remember that book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Like in terms of like nailing down what your psychographic profile is when you're trying to figure out what mm-hmm. your niche is, that book is mm, just amazing. Anyway. All right. So, uh, so guys, go to thoughtleadershipleverage.com. Check out Peter and man, this was, this is a lot of fun. Exactly what I had in mind from our first conversation. I, I cool. figured it would go exactly like this. We covered a ton of ground in a very short time. Exactly. And then I think I'm going to be a guest on your podcast. We'll probably do the exact same thing. So guys, keep, uh, keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, what's the name of the podcast? Where can people go? It's leveraging thought leadership, uh, is, is the name of the podcast. It's on iTunes and all the other, uh, obvious places. So you can Google it. It's also on our uh, website. You can go to iTunes, you go to the podcast tab on our website. Uh, and check them out by design. So this goes back to your niche place mm-hmm. to 99.9% of the world. My podcast should be terrible to the point for <laughs> 1% that we potentially work with. It should be the greatest thing they ever heard. And yes. again, it's by design. So exactly hundred <laughs> percent. All right. Thanks. Peter. Thanks so much. Now I believe that clarity releases energy. So I hope that this episode creates clarity for you by laying out a path forward in your business. Now, if you're interested in starting a podcast like this to help you break into a new industry or to establish yourself as an authority in a niche market, let's talk. We have a complete done for you podcasting service. Uh, That is my agency that I'm building and growing. And I'd love to talk to you about what we can potentially do for you. You can learn more at pursuingresults.com to get a sense of what our service is all about. And if you're ready, if you're really seriously thinking about starting a podcast, I'm happy to brainstorm your ideas and talk about the positioning of your podcast within the market, something that you can take away whether we end up working together or not. So you can grab a time on my calendar for a podcast brainstorm call at bookjohnson.com. That is bookjohnson.com. I just want to thank you again for listening to the show, for leaving us a rating and a review on iTunes and more importantly, for investing your time, your energy, your attention into the show. It really means the world to me that you would do that. So again, this is the UX podcast where we learn how to turn a rockstar business into a UX machine and we'll see you on the next episode.